Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Good to be back. Yes, good to be reunited. Because we've been doing it separately. I, I was in Salford for a while, and then I was in Chicago. Now, there's something I need to talk to you about re- with regards to that, actually. We made a video to promote our live shows, which are happening in London in May and June on the South Bank. And I recorded my end in, in Chicago, and you recorded your end. I'm not quite sure where it had the look of one of those hostage videos. Um but a couple of people have asked me a question on social media, and I, f- I feel I need to put the question to you. And I can tell you that this particular thing that I'm about to mention is happening at the moment. What is with the whole one sleeve rolled up, one sleeve down thing? How strange. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, people, because you, you do it in the video and you're doing it now. Um, and I wondered if you, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to start a trend? Definitely. Do you not know about the <laughs> asymmetric sleeve trend? So, so you don't even realise that I you do it. I didn't even realise I'd done it. It's not like the French tuck. It's not a, a conscious uh, fashion decision. No, no. Wow. It's going to catch on. Maybe on the next series of Queer I did Eye notice, that we're getting people to do the end. I did notice, you know, when I grew a beard after the 2015 general election, suddenly lots of people grew beards. I mean, I know you might think it was <laughs> Prince Harry. But honestly, and then there are articles saying, my God, if even Ed Miliband looks good in a beard, maybe it's time for people to men to grow beards. They were saying that's peak beard. Well, I didn't know that was peak beard. I think I was sort of, you know. Sort of point I've had one since 2002. Well, then it obviously wasn't you then that led, <laughs> that led to the growth in beards. Anyway, asymmetric sleeves. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a thing. It's a thing. You get the best of both worlds. <laughs> Maybe that's what our listeners should do. If you listen to this podcast, that should be your little secret sign to fellow listeners. You know, like the Masonic handshake or something. I'm a bi-sleever. Yeah. <laughs> Good. I'm, I'm pleased we've addressed that. That yeah. is the burning issue. Yeah. And by the way, tickets for the live shows in London in May and June at the Underbelly on the South Bank on sale now. So this week's episode then. Cycling. It's a, it's a tribute to Norman Tebbit. Yes, on the bikes. On your bike. Yeah, there we go. We've got a title. On your bike? Yes. That's good. That saves us sort of the usual. <laughs> what the hell is the title? Sunday evening panic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when my titles always get rejected. It's, yeah, one in 50 of them get accepted. This, this is, is popular of, by popular demand. It, it is. It's a bit like Park Run. We've had so much email yeah. over such a period of time that we think, well, it's it's something we should be talking about. And it is, you know, it's about health. It's about the environment. It's about the kind of town or city you live in uh it's it's about you know your natural environment it's about all of these things isn't it and it, you know and uh we're we're lagging britain aren't we we could do better 
and we'll find out how in this week's episode. And we'll be joined by comedian Laura Lex, who's going to be suggesting some ideas, which, which could be reasons to be cheerful. Good name for Scrabble. So what's your reason to be cheerful, then? My reason to be cheerful is I met Greta Thunberg. How very exciting. Um, I'm not sure about my pronunciation. I did consult you on the pronunciation. You left very kind of left me an audio message with the pronunciation. I tried to call you and you didn't pick up. No. I always think it's weird when somebody texts you and asks you a question, you ring them straight back and they don't pick up. Well, I was difficult of... not to feel insulted in that situation. Yeah, well, I, I know you obviously find it difficult to not feel insulted in many situations. <laughs> uh, uh, I was busy. But on to the sort of rather more important issues. I mean, she is incredibly inspiring. And, you know, the, we did this meeting in the atley room in the portcullis house now's a commons and you know there were like hundreds of people packed into that room young people mps people like craning their necks to sort of see her listen to her i saw harriet harman there you know been deputy leader of the labor party incredibly senior parliamentarian you know what i mean and it, it, it was really a sort of moment uh and there was something she just has a sort of quiet authority and you know and i think the reason it's sort of hits home and you know i also talked to the extinction rebellion protesters this week uh, who are in parliament square and the reason that their campaign has hit home is i think you know it's about the truth i mean i think mps of all parties feel well they're kind of right about the the urgency and the failure of politics to get to grips with this so i think it, it was and why is it a reason to be cheerful because i do think that the and i think i said this to you last week um I feel like the mood has shifted quite significantly as a result of these two things, the, the pupil climate strikes and Extinction Rebellion. And I think Extinction Rebellion, we should do this on an episode, is an incredibly interesting protest because the way they did it, it was breaking up uh, yesterday at Marble Arch. And two things that struck me were so the, one of the speakers gave a closing speech in which they thanked the police and there was a massive cheer. Now, you don't normally that get that on a demonstration. And secondly, they, they were cleaning something, the police. They were, exactly. They were cleaning the pavements. Wow. After they left, I mean, it is interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. Well, that's very impressive, and uh, Greta Thunberg is amazing. Yeah. And you know, especially any other week, your reason to be cheerful would be that you'd met Basil Brush. Yes, indeed. I mean, not anyway. I mean, this week in Doncaster, yeah, you met Basil she Brush. And Basil any Brush. other week, that would have been the yeah. reason. But she even beats yeah. Basil Brush. So it's exciting. what's your reason to be cheerful? Um, mine is the kindness of strangers. So my wife is about to turn forty. She's having a birthday party on Sunday. Well, I'll be coming. She has asked me to be in charge of the music, but she's very and the specific. cheese tower. She's well. She has asked me. She said she doesn't want a cake, but she wants one of those things. That that looks like a wedding cake but is made of cheese so i'll be assembling one of those but she she also put me in charge of the playlist but said she doesn't want it in any way to reflect my taste in music and she doesn't want anything like the smiths or the joy division in there so i, I mentioned this on twitter and said look i've got a bit of a black hole i don't really know much about dancey pop music from about the year 2000 onwards and people have been so kind and sent me spotify playlists and now wow. i think i'm somewhat of an aficionado can i just ask a request it's not too loud the music at least the first part of the evening no no for for for, for, for you older people it's well, really important that you're able to sort of be able to hear yourself talk okay okay you, you, sorry and there, is there anything you particularly like dancing to and i'd like seats as do, well do you enjoy a place to sit down a conga do you want a conga mm. superman mm. agadu <laughs> the internationale mm. <laughs> reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd
We're delighted to have with us Dr. Rachel Aldred, who is reader in transport at the University of Westminster, and Peter Walker, who's political correspondent at The Guardian, and has also written a fantastic book called Bike Nation, How Cycling Can Save the World. <laughs> Hello, both. Hello. Hi. Uh, I thought we could start by um, asking you just how you got into cycling and how you became evangelical about it. <laughs> I don't know how to go as far as saying evangelical. For me, I'm evangelical about cities, towns and so on being better places for everyone, being places where everyone can interact and participate. And I see cycling as part of that. But when I got interested in the way that our streets, that our public spaces work or don't work, was really when I was doing my PhD, which was on a completely different topic um, about 15 years ago. And I was wandering around a part of East London and it really struck me that roads were completely different to anywhere else. And the way that people behaved in roads was really distinctive and that really sparked my interest right so so from from an academic um almost anthropological level that got you interested in. yeah i'm a sociologist and i was kind of interested in the power relations who was welcome who was not who was excluded i cycled as a kid i did the classic thing i cycled as a child then when i went away to university i kind of stopped and i only started it because in my very early 20s i was doing a very secure but astonishingly dull graduate job and in a fit of craziness i gave it up to become a cycle messenger cycle courier and I'd not really ridden a bike for about three or four years then. I had no idea what the job involved. Um, and I kind of got hooked. And uh, ever since then, I've cycled an awful lot, you know. And I, was that a cycling job in London? Yes, it was. So, so and I worked real, in Australia in a, after that as well. In at the deep end then? It kind of was. It was crazy. I started in autumn too, which is the absolute worst time to do it. Because obviously then you go into the kind of worst time of year to be a career. But this was a reasonable number of years ago when, you know, it's it's like all these kind of jobs. You get paid by the job. But there was enough work, you could actually make quite a lot of money. And the other thing was as well, you were too tired at the end of the day to do anything. So I kind of paid off my student debt reasonably quickly. Um, and that just got me into cycling from then. But nowadays, my cycling is much more kind of every day. I mean, I turned up here on a bike with like a massive basket on the front and a chain guard and mud guard, a very kind of sedate type of uh, type of cycling these days because i think there can, can be this idea of a, a cyclist as something that is maybe somebody who's such an and then or cycling generally that there's a certain level of expertise required that can feel intimidating particularly for people like me well we, we're gonna get into this but ed and i you know i think we're both people who would aspire to cycle but we're both terrified of it for various reasons yeah. it's basically the idea of a cyclist in britain is the idea of a kind of hobbyist someone who who just likes doing it and maybe owns several bikes and kind of lycra garments and stuff like that. But in other more kind of civilised countries like the Netherlands, people don't define themselves as cyclists and they would define themselves any more than someone who like takes a bath occasion. It's just part of everyday life. And those are almost two separate things. That's quite important to stress. It's not about inverted commas, cyclists, people who do it because they love it. It's about people who you know, just use it as a way of getting around. And indeed, the introduction of your book is entitled Not Everyone on a Bike is a Cyclist. That's the basic point, isn't Which it? Which I then painstakingly explain that over about four or five pages. No, but yeah, yeah, it is. It is that if anything, someone like me is not so much I'm part of the problem, but I'm not the answer. I'm your classic middle-aged male who rides a bike, of whom in London and around the country there's a reasonable number. But in other countries, everybody from like six to 80 does it. Yeah, I mean, it's more like walking in that you don't think if I'm going to go for a walk, oh, I better put on specialist clothing. I'm a walker. I better, exactly, or walk it. <laughs> that doesn't you know? make you a <laughs> walker. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's really weird when you think about it, how in this country we've made cycling seem like something that's really difficult and specialised and only a few can do, whereas there's an assumption that most adults should be able to drive, which is the really difficult, specialised, dangerous thing. Well, th- this is this is what I wanted to ask you about in as much as you talk about other countries and about how it's just seen as a method of 
getting from A to B and not not an enthusiasm or, or a hobby. How did we end up in this place in this country? Because I had the idea in my head, oh, maybe it's because the weather's so terrible in this country. But the, the weather is terrible in a lot of Northern Europe a lot of the time. So there's other factors going on. Can you talk us through what those are? Sure. First of all, just to defend the weather, though, the weather here is actually quite good compared to a lot of places in Europe. But we did used to have a cycling culture. If you look at the amount of cycling in 1950, around one in four trips in this country were by bike. It was a relatively normal thing to do for people. And we lost that in 20 years. It's fascinating. The graph just, it's like we jumped off a cliff in terms of cycling levels. And by 1970, it's basically 1-2% of all trips. So it was just completely written out. So what happened in the swinging 60s then? Transport planning is a big part of the problem. If you look at transport planning in that post-war period, there's an assumption that everyone is going to have a car and, you know, maybe travel by public transport in London and that cycling will just be really... Cycling wasn't considered uh, at all, really. It was written out. It's like the era in Birmingham where they built the kind of bull ring and the kind of inner city ring road and stuff like that. And the weird thing is that lots of other other European countries had a similar thing. I mean, the Dutch are arguably more congenitally bike-mad than the British, but after World War II, they had a very, very similar thing they had the dominance of cars and the only reason that they went to the kind of relatively cycled nirvana that they are now is because of a concerted campaign by people and i go into it in great length in the book but there was this one very famous case where the six-year-old daughter of a well-known dutch journalist got killed as she's cycling to uh, school and he started up this campaign and i apologize for dutch, dutch accent called stop de kindermord i mean kind of stop the child killings and it turned into this kind of extinction rebellion type Amazing. mass unrest where people took the streets and did die-ins and they basically when was that peter this actually, 1970s yeah, yeah it was the kind of early 70s and then from then on they had about 20 or 30 years where they just had as government policy every road we build we will put in bike lanes where necessary or on smaller roads slow down the traffic and make it just safe and it's not magic it's just you have to spend 20 years doing that that is really interesting, isn't it? Should we say, before we get on to what we should be doing here, should we talk about the benefits of this? I mean, maybe they're uh, yes. obvious. We, we could spend an hour doing just the, just the benefits of it. I mean, my particular obsession is the uh, health benefits. Um, since writing a chapter on this in a book, I've become completely mad about this. Because the kind of stat I always say is that in Britain every year, there's what, it's about 100 people on bikes get killed. Hmm. But the best stats we have so far for just England and Wales, the number of people who die early due to inactive living is about 85,000 people a year. And, you know, this is something that is kind of connected to obesity, even though it's a separate issue, but doesn't get talked about nearly as much. The, the average Briton, or certainly half of average Britons, are just incredibly inactive. And that causes, over a period of time, a huge number of health problems, which, if you talk to the you know public health expert, is going to bankrupt the NHS within... 10 years, 15 years, it's all forms of cancer, diabetes type 2, respiratory problems, arthritis, all those kind of things. And public health experts always say, if you say to people, oh, go to a gym, they'll do it for two weeks and then they'll give up. But if you can integrate it into their lives as riding a bike, you know, to and from work or school, then the effects are almost literally magic. If you could turn it into a pill, you'd win every Nobel Prize And going. just to be clear for our listeners how far behind we are, just 4% of people in the UK say they cycle every day versus 43% in the Netherlands, 30% in Denmark, and 19% in Germany. So we've clearly got a lot of sort of, you know, we, a lot of scope to 
to grow the numbers. And I don't know, I'm maybe being optimistic, Rachel. I don't know what you think, but I sometimes think if anything's going to change it, it's going to be government ministers looking at this kind of public health and social care catastrophe we've got connected to inactive living and thinking we need to do something about it. I certainly think the fact that we can't go on as we have done is a big driver for change. I mean, in London, one of the drivers for change has been the fact that London is going to maybe get another 2 million, 4 million Londoners, which is great in a sense because it's because we're a successful city. But on the other hand, if those people are all going to drive, even if they're all going to get the bus, it's not going to work. It's really not going to work. And and carbon emissions is good for, obviously good for, you know, really important for the environment, this... I mean, the studies on, on how much you help carbon emissions by getting people into bikes, they're quite varied and there's a certain amount of estimate. There's one which was done by the European Cycling Federation, which was saying that if you got all of the EU on Danish cycling levels, which isn't, you know, as quite, quite as much as the Dutch, then it would do something like anything up to 11% of the way to meeting the 2020 carbon targets, you know, which is a reasonable chunk. Wow. Have any other countries been in the position we are in, decided to make a change and it's it's worked for them? Often the changes that we've seen have been at a city level. So um, obviously Seville, there are some German cities that have made big differences too. There's also some places in the US and in Canada that have made big differences. Latin America too, um, Mexico City, Curitiba and so on have seen some increases in cycling from low bases. So places are changing. And Greater Manchester could change. Because they've got under Andy, uh, Andy Burnham's mailty, they've got this massive plan to do a kind of London and Moore style series of bike lanes. So fingers crossed that'll make a big difference. So they've got Chris Boardman as sort of a cycling and walking czar. The saintly there. Chris Boardman, yes. Yeah, so, so talk to us about what's going on in Manchester. Well, he has been taken on by uh, Andy uh, Burnham, the kind of new elected mayor of Greater Manchester, as, as you say, this cycling champion. And he's drawn up this plan for a whole series of kind of not only bike lanes on kind of, you know, separated bike lanes on major routes, but also a whole crisscross network of kind of quieter routes. And that's almost a thing that's politically quite difficult because politicians love kind of infrastructure projects. But almost just as important for getting people on bikes is these little kind of quieter routes. But that involves making it safer for cyclists, involves making it less convenient for people to drive. And that's politically very tricky. Let's talk about London because, I mean, I think Jeff hinted at this earlier, the notion of cycling in London, I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm a pretty dodgy cyclist anyway, but it's pretty scary biscuits, I would say. How far have we gone in London, just to take London as an example, and how far could we go or do we need to go? I think the great thing in London at the moment is we have seen stuff that has worked and made a difference. So we kind of know what we need to do. The Most of London still needs a lot this doing. This is the east-west? Not just the east-west. The east-west superhighway shows that in London we can have high-quality separated infrastructure that thousands of people use daily. But also I wanted to mention the Mini Hollands in outer London. And those are programmes that do some of the things that Peter yeah, was yeah. mentioning in terms of creating neighbourhoods that are not full of rat-running, speeding motor traffic that are pleasant for walking and cycling alongside cycle tracks. So transforming suburban areas... And my study has found that that has made a difference, that people are what walking are and cycling many, Where more. would we go in London to see Go these? to Waltham Forest. Go right. to Waltham Forest and just see how the neighbourhoods have been changed when you get rid of that motor traffic cutting through. Is there no, is it cutting out completely or? How do, how do they do it? Yeah. What, what are those measures that they They take? put in planters, pocket parks and so on, so that people who live there can drive to their homes or they can have deliveries, but you can't cut through streets and that makes a real difference. Suddenly streets that had thousands of motor vehicles a day are wow. quiet, children can play. And it's a big benefit for walking too, not just cycling. Wow, that's interesting. And what about this issue then where, where people like Ed and myself, we would like to go on bikes, but we're terrified Ish. of dying <laughs> like it. <laughs> I would say that the thing to bear in mind is that cycling in London and in Britain in general is not as safe as it should be, but it's much, much, much safer than you probably think. And um, 
you know, it's it's looking at the studies and the stats won't necessarily reassure you out on the roads, but pretty much every study ever done has shown that being on a bike in virtually any city in the world is much, much more likely to prolong your lifespan through you exercise. You haven't seen me ride a bike, Peter. Uh, Maybe we should do a special study on you. But the other thing to bear in mind is like to cycle here um, this uh, afternoon. I just had my phone mounted on my bike and put Google Maps on and it showed me the kind of quiet route. So you can do that. If you're not in a, in, in a rush, it took me down back streets. So that's quite safe. And again, a lot of these streets, even around this area, had those little bars in the road so bikes could get through. I think I could, Im- I could imagine cycling somewhere where i've gotten don't have to have any interaction with cars i think that where would the be cycle my, lanes are yeah, separate to the, i think that the, would be the, my the sort of cars. bottom line actually i don't think i would say i just think i'm proficient enough to cycle anywhere you can, you can start my wife looking. cycles every day and you know i mean you can find quiet routes and you can know a route and that can be a good way of like starting off even if it's just to but go could to we a, do more to, i mean you're saying we could do a lot more to transform our infrastructure if we like, where more. would we give us a picture of where we should aspire to be like i mean the netherlands is the place where you look for the infrastructure characteristics you need on main roads you need separated tracks that are safe for kids old people everyone to cycle on and then in neighborhoods you, you can see it in hackney here too what like what peter and i were talking about you remove that cutting through motor traffic you create really quiet neighborhood streets so that people can cycle there without being scared those are the main things and also routes away from motor traffic but you also have this kind of virtuous circle that as more people cycle people who are still in cars get used to seeing them and they're not kind of demonized anymore um one of the places i went to for the search for the book was denmark's third biggest city uh Odense. and there i mean again they spent 30 years of building stuff but they have this amazing stat that 81 percent of their school kids cycle to school wow. and they recommend that from six and above kids should be able to cycle to school on their own without their parents because it's just, it's not just the tracks. It's also the fact that every single driver there is used to seeing cyclists and also used to seeing kids on bikes and will give them that bit more space. Right. So it can be done. It takes two decades of effort, but it can be done. And, and what about these bike rental schemes that, that, that are in country, uh, cities across the country now? Are they generally good things? Have they generally been a success? If the, we see most people cycling as a result of those. If you look at traditional bike sharing schemes, like in London, you'll find that they're relatively small proportion, even of that small proportion of trips that is cycled. I think what bike hire, bike sharing does do that's really quite exciting is it makes it like public transport. It makes it like another form of shared or public mobility. And in London, I think rather than the actual number of journeys, the fact that you saw people just jump on their bikes after a meeting, they didn't necessarily look like they were all kitted up. They were actually more likely to look normal. I think that helps culturally. So for people like me and Ed, who, who are, are scaredy cats, um, <laughs> like, I, I guess we would have all manner of elbow pads and uh, fluorescent bands and, and helmets. But you have said that hel- helmets, if helmets are the answer, then you're asking the, the, the wrong question. This is where you get into the kind of slightly nuanced argument, which obviously, particularly on the internet, is a very popular thing, a nuanced uh, uh, <laughs> argument. You know, I wore a helmet to cycle here, partly Good. because I'm cycling on roads, you know, I cycle on a couple of main roads. But if you were to sit down with a piece of paper and draw up a list of the interventions which would make cycling more safe, then helmets would not be in the top 50, probably. They are not so much a solution to cycle safety, but you know, making everyone wear them is an acceptance that cycling isn't really safe. I mean, in the Netherlands, virtually no one wears them, but their cycle safety rates are immeasurably high. I don't know what the particular stat is. Three or four times the, better? The, yes, exactly. Per kilometre, the risk of dying. And and it's the sort of thing that there are many, many more people injured, you know, with head injuries, falling off ladders or slipping in baths. It's a question of what your perception of the risk well, is. Maybe worth. we should be wearing a helmet when we go up a ladder then. Well, or in cars. Or have a bath. <laughs> yeah, and I would never discourage anyone from wearing one, but there's this weird media focus on 
kind of cyclists being entirely responsible for right. you know their own welfare and the kind of you know parallel is like if you're going to get 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 a plane and they kind of give you a kind of a high vis jacket and say just nip across the one way careful there might be a few jets taxiing you know it's not up to you it's about having a system in place which is safe so rachel you've written about diversity in cycling and often i think peter referred to this it's seen as a middle-aged male pursuit what, what can be done to shift the perception well, I mean, it's not just a perception. It is the case that cycling in this country is demographically unequal. Three quarters of um, cycle trips are done by men. But that doesn't have to be the case. If we look at countries like the Netherlands, you'll actually more trips, more cycle trips proportionally are made by women than men. In the Netherlands, one in four trips by women over 65 is by bike. So this can be done. And this is one of the reasons why I'm so keen on cycling, because it can be a mode of transport that um, provides access to everyone. You don't have to own a car. Children can cycle. Older people can cycle you know, even if they can't drive anymore often. People of all abilities can cycle. But what we need to do is to ensure that we are building that kind of environment that is safe and welcoming, that doesn't make it a white knuckle ride, that doesn't make it scary. So if we build those good cycle tracks, those quiet routes and so on, that will encourage a wider range of people to cycle. That will make it more accessible. Also, just to point out, we need to build for a variety of destinations if we just build for um, commuter routes to city centers to financial districts it's not that surprising if you get more men than women on those routes we also need to build to schools to shops to other destinations as well what about so on an individual level if if you're listening to this and you think oh, I, I should start cycling there's all these benefits health environmental like wh- where's the place to start i think about this as i'm cycling over here what cycling brings me And in a city like London, it brings me this kind of almost magical ability to leave home and know to within almost a minute where I will kind of turn up to at what time. And cycling is this very human form of transport. There's this kind of theory that it's hard to keep eye contact with someone above 20 miles an hour. So on a bike, you can always like see people, you're recognisably human. And one of my favourite things of cycling around, apart from feeling the wind in your hair and, you know, feeling the changing seasons, is just sitting at a junction, kind of waving at toddlers that go past in push bar, in, in, in push chairs, smiling at dogs. You're just part of the city and you're quick enough. You can get to places very, very fast, but you notice the city changing. So I was cycling, you know, I used to live in this area about 25 years ago and it was amazing just to see the changes which i was if i was in a car in a bus you just wouldn't see it's this very human based form of travel i don't think that would be us at the sort of smiling at dogs traffic. i think we'd be sort of white knuckles and sort of, you know, <laughs> that sort of pale face maybe that takes a couple of months of practice yeah to get exactly to that, get that zen stage. maybe 20 years i think <laughs> don't you think yeah maybe so we have a thing on the podcast it's called the jeffocracy i i, I am some kind of benign ruler but well, some kind that's, I think. that's an interesting variation <laughs> <laughs> some kind of wonderful oh. supreme being, uh, but very hands-off. Generally benign. Yeah, yeah, gen- yeah. Unless it impinges on me in some, some way. Um, if if we were to appoint you joint ministers for cycling, what what is the first thing that you would do day one, government level? Because it's, it seems to me that this this uh, especially with you, Rachel, this seems where the change needs to come from. Mm. Well, obviously, I wouldn't have accepted this post without being sure that I could make a difference. So I would have negotiated a really substantial budget for this um, in order that local authorities, that Highways England and so on, could really start building the kind of stuff that we need to build. So I would announce this guaranteed ring-fenced funding to the tune of, um, might be, say, a couple of billion pounds a year that would immediately go into that transformation that we need. So what is a couple, just, is a couple of billion you, you, with your um, treasury head small on change. It? Nothing. Yeah, small change. Yeah, I'd probably right. go... Bigger than that, I would say for the next 10 years, we should guarantee to spend 
I don't know, almost the equivalent of what the road budget is per head. But to because we, we need this massive, massive change for all sorts of reasons, not just climate change. Pollution is this national health crisis, which if it was terrorism Definitely. would be would be Definitely. would be dominating the headlines every single day inactivity i mean you know without getting all kind of greta uh, thunberg on you it is an emergency and it has to be done so you know again if i was in that position i would just embark on this 10 20 year program where central government dictates to local authorities what the standards are because a lot of things that councils do can be well-meaning but rubbish and we know how to do it we know how to get people on bikes you know city after city has shown if you build proper bike lanes people get on bikes it's really really simple stuff but you need someone politically brave enough to say this is the right thing to do, not to consult endlessly, not to worry about what the Daily Mail might say, but just do it, which is easy for me as a journalist to say without having been elected to uh, anything. Well, it's easy for me to say without having been a pr- a pr- appointed Supreme Leader that you have the job and your money is ring Excellent. Thank you very much. Yeah. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to speak now to Manuel Calvo, who is the designer of Seville's Cycling Network and a sustainable travel advisor. Manuel, thank you so much for talking to us. And the the story in Seville is an incredible one. You've seen the number of bike journeys increase by more than 10 times in just a few years. Can you talk to us about how this happened? How did this increase come about? There was a good political situation at the moment. There was a coalition made at the local government between the Socialist Party uh, which is kind of the your Labour Party there, and a small party from the left, it's called uh, or it's called United Left. Uh, we're talking about or around 2003, huh? so it's uh, more than a decade and a half now, right now. But well, there was this good political situation there at the local government, and then having a network and a functional network for cycling in the city was in the program of this little party, of the United Left. And there was a condition that they put on the table to make this coalition. So it was really clear for for themselves, for, for them at that moment, that uh, developing cycling movement and cycling mobility in, in, in the city was uh, really uh, one of the, their main objectives at the moment. And then what happened? They started working with the uh, team of people at the urbanism department in the city. And they got the money. I started work, working there as a freelance, uh, actually, at that point. And we made our first design of the network. Like the first phase, there were 80 kilometers built in just a one and a half year scope. And just people started cycling. It was just like that. <laughs> so, so it was just that the network came into existence. That was enough to get people cycling. There weren't other things done. There weren't sort of public health campaigns. Well, I, I'm going to tell you something. Uh, the, we, we were a plan, a master plan also for the, all these back developments. Uh, and there were uh, a myriad of things that we wanted to do, like such as education uh, plans or communication processes and all that. But it was just like amazing. Uh, we, we Once the network was put in place, people started cycling because it was comfortable to cycling all over the city. So um, it just started, it happened like that. And the uh, bike got into the uh, urban culture of the city. That's incredible. So it's sort of like if, if you build it, build they it and they will come. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So how does Seville feel different as a cyclist now compared to before these changes happened? Now, 
the bike is in the uh, mobility equation of the population, of most of the population. There was a poll made like two months ago that was telling us that around 20 or 21 percent, that was the exact figure, of the people in Seville uses the bike at some point. Now, maybe not every day, but, uh, you know, it's just now inside the culture of the urban culture of the city. You could see bikes everywhere, and it's not strange that you use the bike for mobility. It's just like that. I mean, the infrastructure is like the foundations of the uh, of the building that you have to build for sustainable mobility. Of course, it's not enough just uh, with that. I mean, uh, the, the cycling mobility in the city is stagnant right now. Uh, it's not increasing anymore. And we have to do lots of things in order to increase it again. But uh, if, if you don't have a proper infrastructure, it's just impossible to start. And what percentage of people in Seville now use a bicycle compared to what they used to? From 2007 to 2011, went from 7,000 to 70,000. So it's just a tenfold. Are these mainly cycle lanes then? Yeah, 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 of course. We are talking about a network of uh, lanes separated from traffic. Right. The model in Seville is uh, those kind of traffic uh, cycle lanes, uh, a two-way cycle lane, um, from 2.2 to 2.5 meters wide, and they're painted on green. And uh, we took a lot of care that would be safe and recognizable to get through the intersections. And is that around the whole city? Yeah, yeah. That first phase uh, covered the whole city, but not all the avenues. Because something I have to say is that the uh, bike lanes are placed on big avenues and big streets. Of course. Not on on secondary and residential streets. They are only put on those streets and avenues where the difference in speed with motorized traffic is is a big one. Uh, So uh, uh, there's a need, of course, of, of separating traffics. And... Right now, the network is 180 kilometers long. So we had a second phase that was built in 2011, 2010, 2011, of 40 more kilometers. And from there, uh, it's been increasing to the, uh, the, uh, the figure that we have right now. It's around 180 kilometers. So right now, uh, 95% of all the avenues are, do have a, a bike lane separated from traffic. So it's really comfortable. And it's easy to use the bike. I think that's the main point here. And what about motorists? Was there a lot of uh, a backlash from car drivers because uh, they removed something like 5,000 car parking spaces from the city? Um, how, is, how was the initial reaction from car owners and how has that changed over time? Well, there, there were really bad reactions, of course, <laughs> as you can imagine. Yeah, but you have to face them. Uh, it's a matter of political braveness. And you just have to be brave with that because the uh, result is so good that nobody was you know, talking about that, about those lost uh, parking spaces in, in, in one year scope because everyone was cycling around. I mean, everyone has in their own family someone that uses the bike every day. And what can Britain learn from Seville then? You have to make a, a, a good infrastructure and you have to do it uh, fast. That would be the main point. 
uh, a complete infrastructure and do it fast. Uh, that's the, the beginning. And after that, you have to do lots of things, of course. And Seville, for example, is not good for restricting cars, for example, in the historical center or on regulating parking. I mean, the city has to do a lot. Uh, but on cycling, uh, we, we have learned and what we're you know, uh, talking to the other cities uh, about is to this, you have to do the uh, infrastructure fast, fast enough in order for it to, to be functional. One last question. We have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, uh, where, where I'm a benign leader and I appoint our guests as the, the minister in their various areas of expertise. Yours clearly is cycling. If we appointed you minister for cycling, what is the first thing that you would do? Well, what I would do is not only improving cycling, because the, you have to take into account the whole picture. I mean, that's, this is the, maybe the main problem that we are now facing in every city. The uh, mobility system has to be sustainable. And that means that we have to use the car less far than we do now. Uh, for example, we have some calculations uh, done in Seville using, for example, tools like for measuring sustainability, like uh, ecological footprint that in order to make uh, a sustainable mobility system in the city or the metropolitan area in Seville, we would have to low the uh, use of cars for, uh, by 80%. You know, we have to get rid of four out of five cars that are now running around. <laughs> so, wow. Uh, I think this could be the uh, same situation in every city. So what we're facing here is a huge problem. And also it's a huge opportunity. Because having bikes around and people walking and, you know, freeing space from the use of cars, it's, uh, it's good for everyone. What the experience in Seville demonstrates us is that people are going to use the alternatives if they are comfortable. And if it's easy to use them, we cannot say uh, to the people that they have to use transit more, for example, if it's going to take, take them you know, three times more time or longer time to get everywhere by transit at the use, if they use a car. So we have to improve all the alternatives in order to make them easy and uh, really uh, convenient and usable. Manuel Calvo, congratulations on what you've accomplished in Seville. It's really uh, quite Very incredible. inspiring. And, uh, and thank you for talking to us. Thanks to you. It's been a pleasure. And, you, of course, you're invited to come to Seville and cycle around. Definitely. What do you think? It's only a good thing, right? We should be cycling more. Yeah, it yeah. helps with environmental problems. It helps with health issues. It helps with congestion and air pollution. I'd, I would like more of these separate cycles. Totally with you. I'm terrified of traffic. Uh, and I do like it if I've been in places where the cycle lanes are the other side of the park cars. I think it makes a big difference or alongside rail tracks. But I'm really intrigued by the ideas of the, uh, by the idea of these e-bikes too, for those of us who might struggle with a hill. I find it really inspiring. You know, it's, it's interesting. I think being with the Extinction Rebellion folk, I talked about it at the beginning. It does make you think, it, it, it sort of pushes you want to be more uncompromising. You know what I mean? It's just, it's so obviously the right thing to do to make cycling just much more intrinsic part of what we do, like Seville did. 
you know, it's so right for the environment. It's just in the end, you've just got to say, well, sorry, we're just, this is what we're going to do, you know, and, and, and I think you've got to sort of, you know, just take a stand on it, don't you? Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. We want to hear your thoughts about cycling or indeed ideas for future episodes. You can email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com, find us on Twitter or Instagram at cheerfulpodcast, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash reasons to be cheerful podcast. This comes from Matt James, and I certainly am impressed by this. Hello, Ed and Jeff. I know you must get a lot of requests for shout outs, but I thought I'd still optimistically email you to tell you about my friend Mike, who's a big fan of your podcast. That increases the chance of a shout-out. Mike is a running obsessive. He's only 31, but has already completed 10 marathons, plus endless half-marathons. He's even set up a running club in Haiti when working there for an NGO. Uh, Anyway, I'd love it if you could give a congratulatory shout-out to Mike, because on Easter Saturday, he was up bright and early to compete in a Finsbury Park park run. And he actually managed to win the whole event. And then a mere three hours and a few post-run stretches later turned up to Stoke Newton Town Hall to get married to his now wife, Liz. Wow. A ceremony at which I was honoured to be one of his two best men. We mentioned the Parkrun victory in our speech later that day at the reception in Hackney, but I know a shout-out on his favourite podcast would also go down a treat. I'd also recommend him as Minister for Exercise in the Jeffocracy. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, congratulations. Uh, this comes from Lily Peck, who says, it's another Finsbury Park one, oh. who says, I met Stroke, introduced myself to Ed uh, after the Finsbury Park Park run before Easter, and he suggested that I email the podcast with some ideas for reasons to be cheerful. We had a chat in the park. Chatteroo. Uh, uh, yeah, a, a chat with Ed is by default a chatteroo. And although I don't think he was very keen on my suggestion that we should keep British summertime. Uh, oh, I am, actually. We've got to come back to this idea. Sunlight for the many, not the yeah, few. Yeah, I'm totally in favour of this. He was interested in my line of work. I'm a PhD student researching the impact of climate change on crop disease at Imperial and the Grantham Institute. Specifically, I'm looking at coffee and a disease called coffee wilt, which is a problem in East Africa. An interesting idea you could discuss is problem, uh, the wider problem of climate 
climate change and agriculture. I'm not sure people are aware quite how badly lots of commodities such as coffee will be affected. And then the cheerful bit, what can individuals do versus what can the big players, governments and companies do? Uh, Some examples are individuals who can have a big impact through dietary choices and how technology is revolutionising agriculture to be far more environmentally friendly. For example, laser zapping weeds. Wow. Or using drones to pinpoint fertiliser applications. Um, And then she goes on to talk about some other technology-based We should do agriculture properly at some point. Yeah, definitely. Sustainable agriculture. Yes. And the last one comes from Henry Balcom. I hope I've pronounced that right. Hi, Jeff and Ed. I'm writing you as an absolutely massive fan of the podcast. I'm currently rehearsing for a play called Boris Rex. Story of Boris Johnson as a Shakespearean tragedy comedy. Boris Rex follows the perfidious anti-hero from the boorish days of Oxford University through to a blood-soaked general election to a murky tale of ambition, backstabbing, and ultimately a national catastrophe. Borrowing elements from both Julius Caesar and Richard III, the play refuses original verse with newly penned pentameters, spoken word, comedy and rap, and a visual aesthetic somewhere between Greek tragedy and dreadful clown. And Henry is going to be playing David Cameron, Stanley Johnson, Steve Bannon, Paul Merton, and Jeremy Corbyn. Apparently I'm not in it. Um, (laughs) Are you pleased or disappointed that he's not playing you? Probably pleased. I did tell you, didn't I, that I, I... met and have become friends with ben lloyd hughes who played me in the millie band of brothers which was the channel four thing was when i was elected leader and i met him just had him to meet him on a new year's eve and became friends with him and does he ever do you for you i've never asked him that actually that's so weird that you've never asked him no i think it's a bit unfair who who does the worst you and who does the best you i think aisha probably does the best she is good yeah yeah who's ed Miliband needs work Ed Miliband. <laughs> Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at Cheerful Podcast. And here with some ideas, comedian Mr. Laura Pedant. Le- <laughs> what? Jeff just called me off mic, Mr. Pedant. Well, you were being very pedantic. I wasn't being pedantic. You were being pedantic. Oh, I was being pedantic. I was saying that Laura Lex, who is with us to pitch some ideas, which could be reasons to be cheerful, it's a very good name for Scrabble. And Jeff then – hello, Laura. Hi. Uh, and, then, and then Jeff said, uh, you know, well, you can't have a proper name in Scrabble, so it's a terrible name for Scrabble. And then, uh, and you then you he said, like, oh, <laughs> and then I, then I said, oh, says you, Mr. Pedant, because I feel like yeah, that's, exactly, that's exactly the kind of thing you would say. It you also, called me Mr. Pedant before. It was like last like week it? it was Mr. Gassy, and this week <laughs> it was Mr. Pedant. It doesn't help your case that you've now brought this up on air just to... I think it helps my case a lot. For pedantry. Oh, uh, interesting. I feel yeah. like this is just more evidence. <laughs> no, I think it's more like yeah, Lord hypersensitivity rather than <laughs> Lord Peasant. Let's call you Lord Peasant. Anyway, sorry to introduce you into our marital row. Right. I mean, just... Laura, how do, you, how do you feel our relationship is going as an outsider? It's exciting. <laughs> it's sort of like a tennis match. I'm sat in between. <laughs> when you're around uh, an old married couple mm-hmm. and they start to row, do you enjoy it or does it make you uncomfortable? Depends if it's a proper flaming row or if it's like sniping. If it's low-level sniping over a few hours, I can't bear it. And it will cause me to explode and then I... Right, it's got to become a flaming row then. <laughs> yeah. I want to make you feel better. <laughs> Where's some crockery to throw? <laughs> right, Laura. So we, back we, to the main subject. We're going to try and sweep all yeah, this under the carpet. Yeah, you've just... Yeah, like exactly. You know, you've just distracted us. <laughs> 
Uh, you've brought some ideas with you. What's what's your first one? My first idea is um, when television shows or films have a portrayal of being abandoned somewhere, a la lost or something like that, they should have to have a realistic portrayal of what happens to eyebrows in that situation. Right, because you, you never really see hair grow. Occasionally, if it's a, some kind of castaway thing, you'll see a big bushy beard on a yeah. gentleman. Yeah, exactly. On men, it's like, oh, aren't you rustic? You've been alone for ages, surviving. But the average woman's eyebrows do not look perfect given three or four days without a brow, a, 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 without a tweezer or a, a threading bar. What's and that, though? What's what? Is that what happens to eyebrows? I mean, I'm, it's, I've never I'm, done anything a revelation. with my eyebrows in my life. I had one, <laughs> one which has started to go go a little bit rogue. I'm like really fascinated by this. Yes, this is sort of a death in patriarchal issues as well, that you guys do not have to spend, like maybe not hundreds of pounds, but let's say 50 pounds a year on keeping your eyebrows looking like a human being's eyebrows. What or happens what, to them otherwise? Oh, if I didn't maintain yeah. my eyebrows, they'd be Take about two centimetres depth and they'd meet in the middle. Wow. Yeah. And that's just a thing I have to maintain to be average. Right? Yeah. This bit, this little channel in the middle that's all like, oh, isn't that normal skin? No, that would be jungle if I didn't do it. Wow. So will you tell us about the the, the, the different tools involved? Plucking. Well, have you right, have you been to a shopping mall recently? I have. Yeah. So you know sometimes if you're going down there they'll sell candy floss and donuts and stuff in the middle section and then there'll be some sort of nurses uniform type people with loungy chairs. Yes. Leaning over someone with a bit of string in their mouth. Yes. That's threading. That is ripping someone's eyebrows out ah! using little bits of curled string. Right. So here's here's my question. When I was growing up, I never saw those people in the shopping precinct. No, nor did I see. Nor did you know everyone I see. Uh, I would see have a, a an unibrow. So Tweezers. what changed? Well, I think we've always maintained eyebrows. I think eyebrow fashions have changed. So in the nineties, eyebrows were very, very thin. They were really like lines. Apart or you'd from the Gallagher the brothers, the whole thing out. Well, men don't have to deal right, with this kind yeah, of crap, yeah. do they? But when have you ever seen like a a famous woman with a monobrow? I mean, this is like a revelation. Do you know the program Horrible Histories? Yeah. So basically, well, my, I watch Horrible Histories with my kids. I mean, they should have like women with weird eyebrow situations on Horrible Histories because they certainly didn't have plucking in, in the sort of caveman era. Yeah. So eyebrows should just, if you're stranded on a desert island, my argument is that Evangeline Lilly can look great when she first gets there. That's absolutely fine. But either I would like a scene every third episode where she gets like a shard of glass that she'd rescued and some tweezers she had in her pocket and sorts them out. Or let's see some naturalistic looking eyebrows. Wow. Would you enjoy a shift in eyebrow fashions? Um, I think the Delavines did quite a lot for my people in allowing <laughs> the larger eyebrow <laughs> to come back into fashion. But is it, is it like a genetic thing that is what happens to women but not men? What do you mean? The eyebrow. Well, no, but or natu- do I have them? But just- naturally, like a lot of women would have eyebrows as thick as men, but we pluck them and we shape them because the like right. accepted form for an eyebrow for a woman is, is right? a styled eyebrow. How interesting. Yeah, yeah, I very, can't very believe this so. is an Your education. Wife st- st- style her eyebrows. Yes, yeah, she goes and gets them threaded sometimes. Wow. Yeah, I'm so. Did, so did you just think that, like, genetically, women just had like sleek, perfect eyebrows with no? Wow. This is yeah. so. To so be fair to Ed, you have <laughs> lovely eyebrows, and I d- you're not doing oh. very much good grooming of oh. your eyebrows. I'm, I take That's it. So nice. I forgive you for the scrabble. Uh, <laughs> wow. 
I mean, no, honestly, this is an education. Yeah, it's another hidden cost of being a woman. It, exactly. All right, well, okay, we'll, we'll have, we'll it. have it. Yeah. Uh, what you got next, Laura? In order to vote for a political party in an election, you should have to be able to quote three of their policies that you like. Mm, good. Or even a Brexit referendum. Yeah, well, we've we've talked about this before. We talked about those online tests yeah. where you just tick the policies you like and it tells you which party you're both uh, yeah. most suited for. Ed wasn't a particular fan of those because they came into fashion during the 2015 election. Yeah, and didn't go that well. Uh, <laughs> in case you went away. Um, yeah, well, we, I think, we, do we like this? Yeah, having sort of sat in on focus groups and those kinds of things, how aware do you think a lot of voters are of the policies of the parties they vote for, or how tribal is it? I think people get more aware during election times because they get lots of bump through their letterboxes to tell them, but I think generally not that aware, I'd mm. say. Because I think that even, like, I'm vaguely aware of stuff. And a Green Party voter. But I don't think I could write down three firm policies. Yeah. So, like, I'm not, I'm not like, using this as a stick to bash, like, oh, no. the idiots, the vote a different way to me. I'm like, oh, no. this would help me too. If anything, it's probably to do with engagement. You've probably got a lot of people who think, oh, who cares what they say because, you know, they, um, they're they just going to get in, in office yeah, and not, not do, do it, it anyway. Yeah, yeah. But then maybe if you had a system where everybody had given their three policies, you could then collate those at the end and find the most popular three policies, let's say, and then they were not allowed to U-turn or backtrack on those policies if they were elected. Interesting. And then you'd have, like, they would know explicitly why they were elected. I think this is a good idea. There's something in it, definitely. Yeah. Uh, All right, Laura, what else do you have? When you have a driving test, you should also have to pass a pavement test in order to be a pedestrian and to use pavements. What frustrates you about fellow users? Because I often feel like the fellow users of the pavement are a loose coalition (laughs) of idiots sent to thwart me. Yeah. So my ideal situation would be, and I'm sure someone else must think this too, I would like a lane system in place. Being a shorter woman, so I'm five foot, people tend to look over my head and assume I will get out of their way. And so if I'm in a busy like concourse situation like Victoria, I'm just scrabbling in and out. You're a fast walker. Yes, but only in cities. Um, I've got tiny, tiny legs. Yeah. But when I'm walking with I my really husband... I really like fast walkers. Oh. Well, you wouldn't like me in the countryside. Ah, uh, fine. <laughs> no, I don't mind in the countryside, but I can't abide slow walkers. No, but if you had a you lane system... You have got long legs, though, and I, I do know. feel sorry. So I'm a fast walker, so we, we do fine when we're out and about together. But I feel sorry for anybody who is with you who has short legs because you have these... You're Mr. Longshanks, aren't I'm you? I'm totally intolerant. yeah. I'm totally intolerant. So say you had a lane system then on a pavement where on the inside lane by the shops, you've got a browsing lane where if you're texting or doing something or looking in the windows, you can just meander about the tube escalator, basically. Yeah, or a motorway. Yeah. And then you can have like a push chairs and small children lane, but still going somewhere. Then you can have a normal lane and then you can have a purely overtaking lane. It's very frustrating when people just stop. Oh, yeah. Stop to look at their phone or something. Yeah, there should be fines for that. Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, I'm I'm really into this. All right, Laura, you have one more idea for us before you uh, before you disappear. So this idea is that when people want to advertise anti-aging creams or really dresses or anything, there should be allowed some models, but then also modeling should be done using a Jura system of modeling. So if you're going to show someone a mascara that makes my eyelashes four centimeters long, you have to show it to me on a random person, not this person selected with amazing eyelashes. Or if you're going to show me a bodycon dress, you have this random selection of women that you're going to trial that dress on. So. What is a bodycon dress? So it's like a dress that gives you the perfect silhouette. 
but it's modeled on women who already have the perfect silhouette instead of someone like me that has four hips instead of two <laughs> and a weird dip in the middle. So you should just get a random Jura selection of models and your product should I have like to be that. good enough to survive that. So I, I'm, I'm not a big user of uh, the beauty product. It may surprise you to hear <laughs> Are you? Well, last summer I was we were I was on a holiday in Italy and we met I met somebody who is a doctor and he he's like a skin doctor and he basically said to Justine that you should use like sort of sun cream all year round mm-hmm. uh, in even in London because otherwise you get the UV rays and you know well a it's a health wise b sort of looks wise. So are you wearing ombre solaire now then? Uh, I am. Really? Or is it ombre solaire? It's some kind of. It's like a. It's like a moisturizer, but it's like also functions as a sort of sun cream. Oh. So Does anyway, it... I've been doing that since last summer. That's my secret. Well, there you go. I mean, his 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 head. I mean, it's <laughs> like a random random selection of, of one. <laughs> yep, you can try my bodycon dress that I've Fine, got to okay, sell. Good. Yeah, I've always wanted to. Um. Yeah. So that's a tip. Yeah. You get the best tips here. <laughs> Laura, if people want to come and see what you're up to, uh, where, where can they find you? Uh, my website is www.lauralex.co.uk and I'm on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and all that stuff. And you're working on a new show which is called Knee Jerk. Yeah, yeah. I'll be at the Edinburgh Festival. I'm previewing all over the place so you can check out the preview dates on the website as well because I'm everywhere trying that show out and then it will eventually land in Edinburgh. Great. Laura Lex, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Great for Scrabble. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, there we go. Another episode. We're in the outro. Time for us to go now. It is. Did you see that thing that went round on social media this week where you had to list five jobs that you'd held in your life? So I tried to do it for you to see who had the, the, the more or the least impressive route to where we are today and I had for you economic advisor at the treasury MP for Doncaster North secretary of state for energy and climate change leader of the opposition and then podcaster <laughs> what was yours like printer's devil fish and chip shop worker Mr Blobby mobile disco DJ and podcaster. job with Ed Miliband yeah, yeah. Uh, you're on the up ish <laughs> You're saying you're over. You're, the, trend, you're tra- the trend is your friend. <laughs> you're trying to say you're 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 over the hump at this point. Oh yeah, well over the hump. Ed, that's that's an insult to our podcast. Oh, and everything sorry, we've sorry, achieved. sorry, sorry. <laughs> right, we should uh, we should thank our guests. I'd like to thank Peter Walker, Rachel Aldred, and Manuel Calvo. And thanks to comedian Laura Lex, which would be inadmissible at, at Scrabble. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Uh, James Deacon made our Ident's Ed Seed compose the music. Uh, the podcast was produced by the wonderful Emma Corsham. She's back from her jollies. She's back. She is back. And in full swing, uh, Joel Pierce is our researcher, uh, along with Joe Kenyon. And our artwork was designed by... Emily Power. The people. He's been a bicycle made for two. He's been strong and stabilisers. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. <laughs> <laughs>